Welcome to the CCF Iowa podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the second to the last episode of Real Talk. The next episode isn't going to happen for another couple of weeks, so uh, be on the lookout for that, but don't expect it to come until uh, a couple of weeks from now. Uh, But tonight we're going to talk about um, something that I find particularly interesting. Let's put you in a scenario real quick. If you're on your deathbed and you think that you've lived a good life, but your family, your friends are around you and they kind of think vice versa, they think that your life hasn't been that good, that you're not a very good person, is there a way to determine who is right? Or maybe vice versa, maybe maybe you think that you've not lived a good life, but everybody around you sees that you've done uh, uh, that you've led a great life. I, th- I think of that classic ending to the movie Schindler's List where where uh, Oscar Schindler is just saying, I could have got more, I could have got more, I could have got more. But there's thousands of people around him that are saying, look at what you've already done. Is there a way to determine who is right? Is there a way to determine what is a good life? See, Socrates says that the unexamined life is not worth living. living and frankly... I agree because we need to to uh, constantly assess what our lives are and, and what trajectory we are going uh, because that is ultimately the best way to figure out if we are having a good life. Now, there's an ancient myth uh, of Sisyphus. Now, Sisyphus is a person who is condemned because of his wrongdoings on earth to push a boulder up a mountain for his whole eternity. And once the the boulder gets to the top of that mountain, guess what? It rolls down the other side. And frankly, that sounds like an absolute nightmare. It sounds like something that just sounds incredibly depressing and incredibly meaningless and, and frankly just a lot of labor and it just doesn't sound... I don't want any part to do with that. I don't want any part of Sisyphus's life. But Albert Camus, a philosopher, says that we must imagine Sisyphus happy. And frankly, why, right? Because I don't think that sounds like a happy scenario. I don't think anybody could be happy in that scenario. But Camus thought that everything is meaningless inherently, but we have to find meaning in what we decide to value. And so if we are to stay optimistic, if we are to stay positive, if we are to to be people that that live uh, good lives, then we have to imagine even something like carrying a boulder up a mountain and it falling as soon as it gets to the top and you have to start all over again. We have to think of that as happy. We have to think of Sisyphus as enjoying his work. And all this was inspired because I was thinking about, you know, we're getting close to the Christmas season. You know, if you're one of those people that celebrates Christmas early like me, or you know, quote unquote early like me, uh, then man, we're already celebrating Christmas. But if you're one of those people that are like, no, Christmas can't start until December or at least till after Thanksgiving, like fine, but we are still nearing the season and you should start to think about getting presents for your people already because if you wait until December, you know, 15th, guess what? It's all going to be gone. So, um, so regardless of whether you, whether you start to celebrate Christmas, Christmas is coming close and there's this one movie that I think is probably the most definitive Christmas movie, right? I mean, obviously, I'm talking about Die Hard here. I'm just kidding. We're actually talking about uh, It's a Wonderful Life. And sure, there's a lot of really famous Christmas movies out there. I mean, we've got Miracle on 34th Street, and we've got A Christmas Story. We've got, you know, the Frosty and the and the Rudolph and the Grinch animated movies. Maybe you're like a, a White Christmas fan. Uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of different 
options for what your go-to Christmas movie is. Maybe for a modern example, maybe maybe Elf is your go-to Christmas movie. But regardless where you fall on that, I'm pretty sure that It's a Wonderful Life is also up there with it because this is just one of the most classic movies of all time. This is one of the best movies of all time. That's a fact. That's not my opinion. This is an excellent movie. This is a really charming, really wonderful movie. And if you don't know it, I mean, I'll, I'll run down some of the stuff with you with you uh, briefly here and we'll talk at the end uh, about it a little bit more. But uh, this is one, a movie that I've been thinking about uh, a lot recently because It's a Wonderful Life is a story. So first of all, it starts um, Jimmy Stewart and is directed by Frank Capra, some pretty uh, famous film directors back in the day. And uh, and this movie ta- is the story of a guy named George Bailey. Now, in 1945, when this movie takes place, or at least in 1946, uh, on Christmas Eve in uh, in New York, George Bailey is is finally at his wit's end, and he decides he wants to commit suicide. But his friends and family. Uh, are praying for him when they don't know where he is, and an angel intervenes to save him. And throughout this this movie, we it's not just the story of how George gets there, and it's not just the story of what happens, you know, there and after. But there are uh, we really get to see George's whole life. We get to see how when he is twelve years old, uh, he winds up saving his brother. Uh, from drowning and how um, in that process he kind of loses hearing in his left ear. And we also see George prevent a town pharmacist from accidentally poisoning a child's prescription. And, And we get to see how he doesn't actually go and fight in World War One because he can't make it because of his hearing. And we kind of see how that affects him a little bit. And we see him running a bank. And we see how at his honeymoon, he has to front some of his own money, his whole honeymoon money, uh, to to be a good person, to uh, to help out his community. And, and we also see kind of the last day before his, before Christmas Eve, before his attempted uh, suicide, that, that he um, has misplaced some money uh, that was supposed to help him and and the business out but he is now going to be uh, prosecuted for mismanagement of funds because eight thousand dollars just disappears and you know this is also 1945 we're talking about eight thousand dollars is a heck of a lot of money and this movie really asks you the question of what defines a good life because george does not believe that he has a good life which is why he wants to end it Now, in studying a little bit about what makes a good life, I came across this guy, his name is Robert Waldinger, and he did a study on happiness. So this study is over 700 men from Harvard, uh, over a 75-year study. And he found some really interesting things about that. First of all, he he starts off by saying how uh, there was a recent survey taken from uh, or about young adults, and they said uh, about current modern day young adults, and they said, "What are the three things that you see that would make you the happiest?" And eighty percent of people said that in their top three is wealth. That wealth would make them happy, and half of the people had fame in their top three. Maybe maybe knowledge is up there. Would you pick knowledge? Do you think that being smart or wise would be one of the top three things to make you happy? 
Well, over the course of this 75-year study, Robert Waldinger, of course, not being able to oversee all of it, but he is the fourth person to oversee it, what he what they realized that actually the thing that really matters is that good relationships keep us healthier and happier. See, because with the 80% of people that said that wealth would make them happy, I mean, sure, I'm a young adult. I would like some money because I would like to pay off my student loan debts. I think I would be a lot happier if I didn't have that weight on my shoulder. But this can't be the metric that defines our happiness because then why are so many rich people so unsatisfied in life? And fame cannot be that because why is is why are celebrities people that we look to up to why are they not the happiest people? You know why are there so many cases of drug abuse and of suicides in the in the wealthy and the famous population if that's the thing that makes them happy because happy people don't commit suicide and don't uh, abuse drugs. So this study that Robert Waldinger found said that good relationships make us healthier and happier. That people who are more connected to friends, to family, to their community, to whatever that happens to be, are happier, healthier, and because of that, they live longer. And people who are more isolated are the exact opposite, which makes me pretty fearful about what we're currently going through in our society, given that we have been encouraging isolation and a lack of friends and family of community, of of restricted access uh, to some of those things for what seems like 10 years now, but is really, you know, Almost a year. We're coming up on it. And so um, Ed, Ed, what's even more sad about this is at any given time, even before the pandemic, one in five Americans report loneliness. And I know that those numbers have been incredibly inflated since the pandemic. I know that there's a lot more than one in five people that have been feeling lonely since March. And the numbers can prove that of all the people uh, that have committed suicide or all the people that have no one around, somebody that can't take care of them. And a lot of people have died because of that. But one other important distinction to make here about these people that says good relationships keep us healthier and happier is that it's not necessarily about quantity, it's about quality. If you're an introvert, if maybe you don't like a ton of people, uh, if you don't really thrive off of people's energy, that's okay. It's not saying that you're going to live shorter and you're going to be less happier because it's the quality of relationships. In fact, I think probably the opposite would suggest if you have a lot more friends, but none of them are very deep, I think that's probably... Probably uh, more leaning towards loneliness and isolation. But if you have like five or six really good friends, or if you have even two or three just excellent friends, then that those quality of relationships will keep you happy, will keep you healthier, and will live and, you, and will cause you to live longer. There's even been studies that uh, for people who are in relationships where they're where they're not happy or where they're frustrated with their situation, uh, where they're just not not happy that they got married, it is actually better for their their mental health, for uh, their um, emotional health, and for their physical health for them to get a divorce. I'm not saying that is healthy, and I'm not even promoting that, but, they, but there have studies been showing that that is healthier to them than choosing to live in a bad situation for the rest of their life. So after all of this, Waldinger's studies just simply says good relationships keep us healthier and happier. And that sounds simple enough, but can't there be more to that? Because what about fame and what about success in my job and what about 
money and what about family and what about uh, <laughs> location? What about where I live? What about all these things? And sure, to some degree, some of those have to play in a little bit, right? Some of the, those those things that seem so big to us have to play in a little bit. You know, your location, your work, your financial situation, uh, all those have to play in a little, little, little bit. But, but really, the keys to a good life are not defined by fame or wealth. The keys to a good life are in success, but success in a relative term because... I want to give an example of something that maybe you would have never thought I would have given an, an example to, and and that is painting art. I, I'm not really in a painting or a drawing type of person, but I think there's a really interesting uh, parallel here because uh, so there's this guy by the painter by the name of Johannes Vermeer. Now, when when Vermeer was painting, painting was uh, was a lot of times of aristocrats. And so you would get these paintings of these fancy people typically doing fancy things, or you'd get these paintings of these historical uh, events that happen, you know, of soldiers who are fighting and winning these real battles. But in the middle of all this, Johannes Vermeer decides to paint a painting called The Little Street. And if you see the painting of The Little Street, if you just Google it real quick, you'll see it's it's a very simple painting and to 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 us today uh, sure it's beautiful but there may not necessarily be anything specifically excellent about that right because vermeer chooses to paint the ordinary and in a time where everybody is painting the aristocrats in a time when everybody's painting the bourgeoisie vermeer is painting the ordinary because Vermeer meant to glamorize the ordinary because uh, so often the big and the the, the boisterous and the the bougie are glamorized and it leads to the ordinary feeling like less i mean we think of this in like modern day examples where we think of first class flights and fast sports cars and things like that and we think you know i don't have that and so i am not worthy of whatever story i have being told or or something like that and and it's just simply not true and vermeer meant to to uh, glamorize the ordinary because life is just hard enough and an ordinary life that is done well should be praised, should be lauded. When I first moved to Iowa City, it was the first time I'd ever like lived on my own. And it was the first time I'd ever been like responsible for a lot of things. So I'd been working jobs at odd hours because, you know, when I was working in the food service industry, you have to work weird odd hours. And so uh, you typically like you eat when you eat. And you, because I work in the food industry, like I just pay for food because I was working uh, there and I was working at Buffalo Wild Wings, so it's good food anyway. But um, when, when I first moved to Iowa City, all of a sudden I had a, a, a full-time job that I got to dictate my own hours. And even then, I came home from every single day and I'm just exhausted. And so almost every single day, I'd pop in a Hot Pocket or I'd go stop at fast food because I was just exhausted. And as I thought about all that, I got so much more respect for my mom because my mom is a nurse and she always has been a nurse and my mom is a wife and my mom was the mother to four kids and no matter what uh, my dad very rarely ever cooked uh, he he knew how to but he just was was usually really really busy and so my mom just decided that it was her duty to do it so every single day at 6 30 
There would be a meal for four or for six people ready, even after she got off of work, even after she had to go in at three in the morning. And I just lauded her because I can't even feed one person myself after just uh, getting off of a three or four hour workday. It was just exhausting. And so to me, my mom is this perfect example of an ordinary life that is extraordinary. Because there's nothing necessarily extraordinary on paper about my mom. But if you've ever met my mom or if, or if you've ever heard me talk about my mom, like I'm talking about now, my mom is anything except for ordinary. She is uh, absolutely extraordinary. She is a trooper. She is a champion. And she is one of my favorite people in the entire world. And It's a Wonderful Life is communicating this same message of an ordinary person can still be extraordinary. Because what happens is, as Clarence shows George Bailey his life, really really what he shows him is the town with the absence of George Bailey. And nobody's around to save his brother when George is 12 years old. And so George's brother winds up dying. And George isn't around to, to stop the prescription mix-up. And a pharmacist winds up poisoning and killing a child. And uh, the banks aren't able to help out the community in the Great Depression because George Bailey isn't there to do or to do that. And and George Bailey is uh, is seen like the town is so different without him. The world is so different around him. The relationships he has are so different around him. He has he has several children in this movie, and the children no longer exist. And his wife and his uh, his his wife he gets to ch- a glimpse to see her, and she's just not happy. And the message of It's a Wonderful Life is that it's a wonderful life, but our lives are wonderful lives. There doesn't have to be anything big or extraordinary or, or fancy or uh, aristocratic for them to be good. I, I think of, of, the, of the same uh, message of that song, What a Wonderful World by Louis Armstrong and how it, it, Louis Armstrong is choosing to see the beautiful things in the world. He's choosing to focus on the good things. He's choosing to be an optimist and he's choos- choosing to see a wonderful world simply out of something that's just ordinary. You know, and even as a more recent example, I think of Hamilton. And if you have seen Hamilton live or if you've seen it on Disney+, Plus, you know that there, there's something really special that happens at the very end of that performance. Because what you realize is that if you, and if you listen to the soundtrack, you know, you know this part is that the play Hamilton is actually really not about Alexander Hamilton. It tells his story, but it really tells Eliza's story. It really is, is a tribute to Eliza Hamilton. And at the end of the visual performance, the the the, the actress who plays uh, Hamilton, you know, whether you've seen it on play or whether you've seen it on Disney Plus, she lets out a big gasp at the very end, right before everything cuts to black. And and there's several different ways you can interpret this. The way that I choose to interpret this is is based off of what I've uh, what I've read. I've read into several of them, and I've decided this one makes the most sense. Is that uh, as as um, Lynn Manuel Miranda is walking Philippa Sue up to the front of the stage as she's they're talking about the orphanage and the legacy uh, that's that's be, that's happened. She's talking about um, or she she's getting to experience all these things, and you can see uh, Lynn Manuel Miranda. I don't think he's Hamilton anymore. I don't think he's Alexander Hamilton. I think he is in that moment Lynn Manuel Lynn Manuel Miranda, and he is guiding Philippa Sue, who's playing Eliza Hamilton. 
up to the stage and he's showing the audience who just got to see all the good that came from her life. And when we think of the Hamilton family, we should think of Alexander Hamilton because he is such an important founding father to this nation. The first treasurer and 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 somebody who uh, fought for uh, for the for the country in the Revolutionary War and somebody who uh, the Federalist Papers uh, had, had a big involvement with and somebody who who just helped shape so much of what the foundation of America is. And when we think of the name Hamilton, we think of Alexander Hamilton. But as, as the show says several times, you have no control who lives, who dies, or who tells your story. And in the case of Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda is telling Eliza's story because in the middle of this play about this extraordinary person in the person of Alexander Hamilton, there's this seemingly ordinary person in the form of Eliza, and Eliza winds up doing some incredibly great things. She starts an orphanage, and she uh, she dedicates all her time and all her resources to helping others in need, to helping uh, her community, and she really was somebody special. And I think this message is a lot more common than you might think. I think this message of something ordinary being extraordinary is all over the place. And I think a lot of times we just aren't looking. <laughs> and if I can do one last movie reference to quote Ferris Bueller, life moves pretty fast. And if you don't stop to look around once in a while, you could miss it. So there doesn't have to be anything big or extravagant about your life say that you've had a great life. What really matters is the relationships that you've had with people. What really matters is the impact, the, the good that you've tried to do for your family, for your community, for your friends. Because in the end, what else is there? Hey, thanks for spending time with us today. If you have any questions about what you heard or any interest in learning more about CCF in Iowa, then please email us at ccf.uiowa at gmail.com and we would love to get you connected.